on the line with us, we have two very esteemed guests, uh, one of which is attorney Alicia Bannon, who is the managing director of the Brennan Center's Democracy Program and director of um, Fair Courts Program in New York, and also uh, Mr. Kevin McMahon, and he's a um, professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and also a 2012 Choice Outstanding Academic Title. And uh, I promise you I can go on and on about both of these um, um, people who are uh, blessing us with their presence to have a conversation about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and the implications that have ensued as a result of her passing. Uh, Welcome to the show, Miss Bannon. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yep. And Mr. McMahon, how are you, sir? Very good, thank you. Yeah. Why do Why do I feel all groggy and like? Should I be? I'm like, it's just so serene. Everything that's happening. Um, I I don't even know where to begin, but I'll begin with Miss Bannon. I'll I'll take an attempt at it anyhow. Let's just start off. I think pretty much all of us understand, you know, uh, what's at stake from quote unquote a political standpoint or from the standpoint of now the um, seat the that Miss Ginsburg. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, rather, um, held for so long, must now be filled. So let's start off just with the, with you know, sort of the process of that, uh, Miss Bannon. And what happens after there is a seat available on the Supreme Court? So that's a that's a great question. I mean, to talk about the well, to to, to talk about the process. I mean, basically, the the president. Can can nominate a successor, and um, you know ultimately that person would need to be confirmed by a majority vote of the Senate. You know the question right now is it's you know less than fifty days until election day, and so is this something that should happen now, or is this something that should wait for you know the results of that election? We we have a precedent in twenty sixteen. Justice Scalia passed away in. Um, February of 2016, about nine months before Election Day. And then in 2016, Mitch McConnell said, we need to let the people decide. And they held that seat open um, all the way through Election Day, all the way until President Trump was elected, um, taking that nomination from from President Obama. And so, you know, the the question right now is, are are we going to see, um, you know, Senate leaders you know, let the people decide again. Mitch McConnell has said no. Mitch McConnell has said that he's going to to, to push this through now. I think there needs to be a lot of um, pressure on Republican senators to not, you know, create two rules, one for President Obama and one for President President Trump. Yeah. Was it a rule per se? Like, is it sort of um, um, a statute, if you will, or written into the the halls of Congress? Or was it just something that they said, sort of a custom. It was it was a custom. And I should say in 2016, it was a custom they kind of made up out of whole cloth. But I, I think it's a really important principle that you can't just have different rules depending on who's in power in the context of 
judicial nominations. You know, this isn't just politics as usual. This is our judiciary. And it can't be, we can't, we're not going to have a functioning judiciary, a functioning democracy, if you just have pure power politics in terms of filling the Supreme Court. To, to say that we're going to hold the seat open and let the people decide in 2016, and then to do the opposite now is, you know, I mean, that would be, you know, it would be akin to court packing. You know, it would really be just saying that who, whoever has the raw power to do so is going to shape the judiciary whichever way they want, with no sense of kind of rules or fair play. And, and I think that that has a real risk of kind of delegitimizing the entire court. Um, so, you know, I think it, there's not a there's not a statute, there's not a rule, you know, rule written down that says what you have to do here. But I, I think what what they should do here and what, you know, basic democratic principles should encourage would be that you if you have one rule for one president, you have to have the same rule for the other president. I may be making a stretch right now, but could a distinction be made or has a distinction uh, been made between what happened in 2016 and what perhaps may occur now in that um, at the time we knew that that was the end of Obama's um, presidency as opposed to now, whereby President Trump may actually be elected? Well, I think the the clear statement that um, Republican leaders, more than a dozen Republicans that are currently sitting, you know, made statements to this effect is in an election year, if a seat opens, you should let the people decide. That's the principle that they put forward. And, and like I said, I think, you know, that wasn't there wasn't clear historical precedent for that. Um, I, I don't think it was the right decision to make, but that was the principle that they set forward, that in an election year, because, you know, there's going to be a chance for people to come together and make a big decision about the direction of the country, the president who's going to sit at the head of our country, that we should let the people decide. And, and if you're going to let the people decide in 2016, nine months before Election Day, that so when a seat opens with less than 50 days, you know, early voting has already started in some places. I think it's really incumbent on them to have that same principle apply now. Yeah. Mr. McMahon, from a political standpoint, what's at stake for the Republicans? Well, you know, Republicans feel that they have um, been very successful in winning the presidency. If you go all the way back to the 1960s, late 1960s with Richard Nixon, um, that they've captured the Senate, certainly in recent years. And certainly conservatives feel that they have not had a Supreme Court that's consistent with their values, that despite the fact that they've appointed, I think it's 14 of the last 18 justices, <laughs> again and again, the, the court uh, ends up disappointing uh, conservatives, especially social conservatives. So they, you know, if you think back to, to this most recent term, uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, issued several opinions that disappointed conservatives, so they don't think he's reliable in the, in the way that they wanted him to be. And this would really cement, um, a. this would be the sixth Republican appointee a Republican appointed justice, and it would, you know, if the choice is correct from that standpoint, it would really cement a Republican majority, a conservative majority, for a generation. I mean, the, the, the six, the current five conservatives are quite young by historical standards. 
um, and they would be there for a very long time. Hmm. Um, what do you think, uh, Mr. McMahon, and uh, looking at your background, just politically, well, I don't think we'll have enough time, but I'll, I'll ask the question and then I'll seek to have an answer to it on the other side of the break. But just strategically, um, politically, for Donald Trump, what is what are the considerations you believe he's making and um, sort of um, how how vehement he should be about um, an appointment um, of a justice to replace uh, Justice Ginsburg? We need to take a break, however, and uh, when we return, we'll continue the conversation with Miss um, Alicia Bannon and Mr. Kevin McMahon. We'll be right back. I am attorney Ernest B. Fenton on the line with us. We have attorney Alicia Bannon and Professor Kevin McMahon. On the other side of the break, I posed the question to Mr. McMahon. Um, strategically, from a political consideration standpoint, um, how do you believe President Trump is going to play his hand on this issue? Yeah, I mean, this has been an issue. This is an issue, um, as Ms. Banning said, in 2016 with the passing of Justice Scalia uh, and and then candidate Trump made a promise to, to select a nominee from a list of about 20 or so. Um, and this was a way for those particularly uh, evangelical Christians, um, conservative Catholics, who were concerned about uh, Donald Trump and his personality and his past, this was a way for him, for, for them to be convinced that he was the right choice for them, right? That he's basically going to try to run, as he's been doing, what's called a base campaign strategy. And the idea there is not to appeal to swing voters, voters who might be Mm -hmm. deciding late, but really to appeal to your conservative base and mobilize those voters to the polls, right? So if they weren't, they were, they were concerned about Trump, they're, they don't, you know, they're uneasy about the the situation in the country today. Uh, they might have stayed home on election day, or or not cast their ballot in the mail. This will drive them to the polls, and that's what he's really trying to do with this choice. Right, right. Um, Attorney Bannon, um, substantively, substantively, or procedurally. If you well procedurally rather, is there anything that uh, Democrats can do to hold up an appointment? Well, there there are things they could do to slow things down a bit. Mm-hmm. So you know the Senate generally operates by um, unanimous consent. So every you know basically there's lots of procedural rules to move things forward that can you know that take up time. And there's a tradition in the Senate of basically cutting through a lot of those rules with unanimous consent. So we don't have to take all these intermediate steps. So there are things that Democrats could do to sort of slow down the process. But ultimately, there there's no longer a filibuster that applies to judicial nominees, including Supreme Court nominees. So if there if there is a majority of, of votes to to confirm a to confirm a nominee by President Trump, then then there's there's not going to be anything that Democrats could do to stop that. I mean, there's more than you know the Republicans hold a majority in um, in the Senate. That that being said, there have already been two Republican senators, um, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who have said that they um, don't think that this that a nominee should be considered before the election. 
So, you know, there, there may be, you know, so I, I, I think, you know, the, the strategy right now is, I think, more to really focus on Republican senators and hold them to their word from 2016 and also really emphasize the, the cost of doing this. You know, I, I was talking earlier about, you know, the, the fact that pushing this nominee through could really delegitimize the court as an institution. You know, courts don't have armies. They don't have the power of the purse. Like what they have is public legitimacy, that people follow their decisions even when they don't like them. And, you know, if, if this becomes something where the Supreme Court is just seen as a partisan political wing of government, I think there's a real risk that they lose that legitimacy. And, and that's really scary. I mean, that's a real threat to the rule of law and the functioning of democracy in our country. Right. So as it relates to the issue of legitimacy of the Supreme Court, um, so this idea or notion that Democrats can sort of counterpunch uh, a Republican appointee by packing the court, then you don't believe that's plausible. I won't say plausible, but but likely. Well, I, I mean, I, I I think that if you have the court delegitimized, there's probably going to be a lot of different proposals that are going to be on the table. You know, historically there has been a very strong norm against court packing. You know, going all the way back to to FDR tried to to pack the court and. You know, despite being a hugely popular president, he failed, and he failed in part because Democratic senators said no. Um, now, you know, if you have a situation where the court's legitimacy has been so undermined, you know, I, I certainly think there will be lots of proposals along those lines, um, you know, that, that might be taken more seriously. Right. And uh, Mr. McMahon, what do you think? Um, so what are the implications? Um, there's an appointment by Donald Trump. We have a um, a right leaning, if you will, uh, court. What should we be concerned about, or what should people on the left be concerned about? What are the issues at hand? Well, I mean, you know, the the idea of legitimacy is certainly a real one. I mean, I think if you think of if you think of it this way, um, when when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. And this sort of applies to some of the research I've been doing on this, on these issues. When he was confirmed, the senators who voted for him, um, and, the, and if you take all the votes of the senators who voted for him and all the votes of the senators who opposed them, and you add up both, there was about a 24.5 million vote difference between those opposing him as opposed to those supporting him, right? So in a sense, uh, the, the, the senators him, supporting him uh, represented a minority of the, of the nation by, by a large stretch, right? Add that to the fact that Donald Trump was elected in this very narrow way, but without winning the popular vote. Add to the fact that, that you know, Democrats have won six of the last seven popular vote uh, presidential races, the popular vote in the last six of the seven presidential elections. You, you get this, this, you know, this, the, but despite that, they've only now appointed um, um, two of the, sorry, three of the justices currently on the court. So you get the sense that the people who are making these choices and who making making these powerful powerful decisions don't represent a majority of the nation. So this becomes 
you know, this is really unprecedented in American history, and it really raises this possibility that a majority of Americans will look to the Supreme Court, which has historically had a great deal of approval compared to the Congress and to the president, uh, and they will not respect it. They will not respect its decisions. And what decisions? Um, I think what I'm hearing on the left side is what's of concern is Roe v. Wade, voting rights, the Harvard case. What decisions um, are at stake here? What's resonating? Well, certainly the the Roe decision is the most is number one on the list, right? Ever since Roe was decided in 1973, uh, social conservatives have been trying to undermine that decision. They've succeeded uh, to a great extent in terms of weakening the Roe ruling, uh, but the <coughs> Roe still remains in place. And that's really been a, ri- a rallying cry for conservatives, um, both uh, in terms of members of, of, of Congress and in terms of voters. Uh, so that's really been the goal, to overturn Rokers' way. That would be highly symbolic and certainly have a, an impact on, on women across the country. Yep. Mr. McMahon, I understand you have to uh, go. I really appreciate you coming on with us today. All right. Well, great to join the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Have a nice day. And Miss Bannon, if you don't mind, if you can hold over until after break, I would love to take some callers. And there are a lot more piercing questions that I have for you from a um, um, sort of procedural standpoint. Uh, this is. Yep. Yep. Thank you. This is the WVON Morning Show. I am attorney Ernest B. Fenton. Seven, seven, three, five, nine, one, one, six, nine, zero is the call in number. Seven, seven, three. Five nine one one six nine zero. WVON News is up next. Um, welcome back, Attorney Bannon. Thank you very much. Yep. And the lines are open at seven seven three five nine one one six nine zero seven seven three five nine one one six nine zero. So, Attorney Bannon, a bit off course, but I think par for course, <laughs> which is. Um, how are you feeling about all of this, just emotionally? What's your overriding thought and emotion behind all of this? Well, you know, I I really wish that we could just be focusing on Justice Ginsburg's incredible life and legacy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really sad to be spending so much time talking about, you know, Senate procedure and a future nomination fight because I feel we haven't had enough time you know i mean we, we haven't given the space to right. to to actually focus on her her remarkable legacy i mean she was before she even reached the bench she had um you know really cemented her legacy as a civil rights icon with her work um at the aclu women's rights project uh litigating um for 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 gender equality cases in the in the 70s and you know, I mean, I, I, I think we all, you know, as a, as, a, as a female attorney, you know, I mean, we, we all benefit and, you know, I'm so inspired by, by the, the, the fights she fought both in the courtroom as well as in her, her personal story, you know, the discrimination that she faced personally and the ways that she was able to, to overcome that and leave, have such an, an incredible life and career. Yeah, before bringing on um, J.P. Kelly from Atlanta, Georgia, um, what hole do you see being left possibly, potentially, um, in um, Justice Ginsburg no longer being on the bench? Well, 
I, I mean, I think she was she was such a strong progressive voice on the bench. I mean, she was, you know, among other things, she was, you know, kind of the great dissenter of of the modern the modern court. You know, she she was so powerful in you know speaking truth to power and kind of calling calling out hypocrisy. Um, on the court, you know, the one of her her dissents that really has has stayed with me was in Shelby County, the case where the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, and you know, basically on this this ridiculous theory that you know, oh, racial discrimination is over and done with in America, and she had this great line about how saying you know saying we don't need the Voting Rights Act right now is like saying oh, in the middle of a rainstorm you don't need an umbrella. Because, you know, look, I'm not wet right now. The point is the Voting Rights Act is doing its job. And when you lost it, you immediately saw a whole flood of, of voter suppression efforts, which is exactly what she predicted in her dissent. Yeah. Let's take it to the line. 773-591-1690 is 773-591-1690. Mr. Kelly, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Just as a matter of disclosure... Uh, Mr. Kelly and I went to law school together. <laughs> yes, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while since we've spoken, but I remember, you know, it seems like yesterday we were in law school. I won't say how many years. Quiet. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> so, yes, sir, how would, uh, any questions for Ms. Bannon? Yes, Ms. Bannon, uh, thank you for your insights. Um, uh, one question I have is that, uh, you know, there's been some discussion about expanding the, uh, the court, assuming that, the, that uh, Mr. Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate. Um, but is that even radical enough? Um, uh, the, the other guest mentioned how uh, a lot of the senators who supported uh, Justice Kavanaugh really represent a very small portion of America, the rural parts, and that the senators who represent large population centers like Illinois and New York and California uh, were outvoted. Is it time that we uh, expand the states and, and balance that out in the Senate, maybe adding Puerto Rico and District of Columbia as states and adding senators from those areas, or maybe splitting California into two states and adding senators there so that we get a more representative body? Because with the Senate composed the way it is, it seems that Republicans will always have an advantage in, in controlling the court. And what do you think about that? Well, you know, you're, you're raising um, an idea that I, I have heard, I've, I've heard raised, you know, I think a number of um, folks, you know, academics, advocates have, have been, have been calling for um, kind of more, more radical changes, not necessarily specifically focused on the, the, the context of the Supreme Court, but more broadly focused on, you know, thinking big about ways of making our um, democracy more, more representative. Um, you, you know, I think, I, I think one point that, that's sort of underlying this that I think is so important is that uh, part of the story, obviously, of the, the um, you know, the, 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 kind of politicization of judicial nominations, et cetera, you know, is a story about, you know, specific decisions that, um, you know, McConnell and others have made and kind of precedents that have been set. But there's a larger story about how, you know, at a basic level, our, our democracy hasn't been functioning very well. And, you know, we don't have institutions that are really representative of the people in a meaningful way. And I think, you know, that is reverberating in, in lots of different areas of our society, including, 
um, including the Supreme Court and how and how that nomination process has functioned. Yeah. Anything more, Mr. Kelly? Yeah. What, one other question is, um, uh, Ms. Bannon, what do you think about um, how Chief Justice Roberts is reacting to all of this? He's always seemed very squeamish about the court being perceived as a politicized institution. He, he doesn't want that. And what do you think would happen if, again, assuming the Democrats win the Senate and the Republicans just confirm someone in a lame duck session, which, again, would seem quite illegitimate to a lot of people? How do you think Chief Justice Roberts would feel about that? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I certainly think you're right that a lot of the, you know, especially in this most recent term, Supreme Court term, there were a number of um, decisions where, you know, folks were frankly somewhat surprised that Justice Roberts voted with the more liberal wing of the court. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that at least one key driver of that decision was his concerns about the court's legitimacy and a public perception that the court was just sort of becoming, you know, a partisan, a partisan body instead of a, a legal and deliberative one. And so I certainly think that's been something that has been weighing on him. He's also made public statements about how, you know, we don't have Trump judges or Obama judges. We just have judges. Um, you know, so I, I think that that public perception of the court has been has been really important to him. You know, I, I don't really know what it would mean if if, if it gets if, if someone is, is pushed through. I mean, I, I would be surprised if he made a public statement about the confirmation process itself. I don't I don't think he's ever weighed in on something. Um, I, I don't believe he's weighed in on, on any of that in the past. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what it would mean in terms of how he might approach decisions going forward if he would, you know, look for other ways to build consensus on the court to try to counter this notion of um, of the court being kind of a partisan institution. You know, there's also a numbers game, though. I mean, at some point he, he may not have the numbers to, yeah. to build that consensus. We, we need to go to break. Thank you, uh, Mr. Kelly, for calling in. Nice, nice hearing from you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Ms. Bannon, okay, if you please, I'll let you wrap it up on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. So I am attorney Ernest B. Fenton on the line with us is attorney Alicia Bannon. She's the managing director of the Brennan Center's Democracy Program and director of Fair Courts Program in New York. Thank you for um, spending your morning with us, attorney Bannon. Thanks for having me. Yep, yep. And um, hopefully, I don't know if you're a coffee, tea, drink, or whatever it is, after this conversation and everything that's been going on the past few days, I'm like, uh, take a moment, take a moment for yourself and uh, breathe, <laughs> because I swear I need to. So if I need to, I can only imagine how you feel in this moment. I can only imagine. So uh, just to wrap it up, um, any last share you have with us, we'd really appreciate it. Well, you know, I guess I'll I'll just say you know you were you were asking earlier about you know what what cases are we you know are are people worried about and i think you know this is a this is an appointment that will you know put someone on the court most likely for the next generation you know these are these are lifetime appointments this is this is a long time and this is a big deal um and so you know i i right now you know the I, I hope that people will really, you know, pay attention to this as a really critical issue for our democracy and, you know, try to hold elected officials to account, you know, and, and really demand demand more from, from our representatives in terms of prioritizing the importance of the court and the importance of this nomination.
Yeah, yeah. You just raised something else. I was about to let you go, but I'll let you go on this last one. Um, is it possible to enact term limits for the justices? If, if let's there's, just say there's an appointment now, the uh, Supreme Court is stacked uh, right-leaning. I think we just lost. Did we just lose her? Yeah, she hung up. Oh, okay. Yeah, she may have been disconnected. She's calling back. 773-591-1690 is the call-in number to the show. It's 773-591-1690. It's your opportunity to call in and share whatever you've gotten from this conversation or provide any insight that you desire to um, provide. 773-591-1690. 1690. All right. Attorney Bannon's back on the line. Yep. So, so sorry about that. That's um, fine. You, you, you're, you're asking about term limits. There, there have been some proposals to introduce um, uh, 18-year terms for, for Supreme Court justices, the idea being that, um, you know, I, ideally that you would give each president the chance to nominate to um, two new justices and that it would become a kind of regularized process. Right, yes. Uh, there's some questions, and I think it would depend on how it's done, if you could do that by statute or if it, could re- if it would require a constitutional amendment. Okay. All right, Attorney Bannon. I very much appreciate you um, coming on with us again, once again this morning. And um, take some time for yourself. And this, if nothing else, is very interesting. I know it's a lot of stress. I can just feel the stress and the anxiety, you know, <laughs> on top of everything else that's going on in the world, right, in politics and in America, then this happens, I swear. 2020. I swear, <laughs> Thank 2020. Thank you so much. All right, have a nice day. You too.